Welcome to another episode of the Sacramento Startups Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bennett, co-founder of Startup Sac. Earlier this month, we held our 20th Startup Sac Happy Hour event. Since launching in January 2017, this event has provided a networking and mentoring platform for over 600 people in our community. Once again, we had a great veteran entrepreneur come out to share her experience and expertise with the audience. Amtrain founder Jeannie Nancy fielded a range of startup questions from the audience, and we recorded it once again to share with the broader community. We joined the conversation as Jeannie talks about the inspiration and origins of her startup before opening it up to questions from the audience. Take a listen. Thanks, everyone, for coming out, even though it's kind of crazy smoky out right now. Let me tell you a little bit about what M-Train does. So M-Train is a culture tech platform for businesses. It provides information and guidance to employees on their rights and responsibilities. And at the same time, it provides analytics and information to employers so they know where their, their risks are, where their hotspots are. Um, Kind of the, the inspiration for M-Train uh, was I was Google's first outside employment council way back when. Uh, and I was conducting live training as an employment lawyer. My background is as a labor and employment lawyer. And I probably had, I don't know, 100 or so Google managers in a, in a training workshop. And Larry Page came into the, the room and was quite upset to see all of his managers down for the count. And he's like, what are they all doing here? There's no way. I mean, they, they should be busy. And I, I said, shoot, you know, we really need to be putting this information on the web in a way that people can process it and digest it as they need. Um, and that was really kind of what got the wheels uh, started. And I have probably, we all have a unique story, right? But for, for me, it was a long road because I was kind of percolating this idea as I got married and had baby number one and baby number two. And I was practicing law and working on this on the side and did that for a number of years. And, um, you know, and down the road, I'm like, oh, we should really have kind of a Quora for the workplace, but staffed by like labor lawyers who actually know what they're doing and who are unbiased and neutral so that employees can feel like they're not getting the shaft from HR and it's actually safe. And lo and behold, this is kind of like cosmic kind of goodwill for, for my perseverance, I guess, because I've had this idea for years and years. And all of a sudden we have this, you know, Me Too movement, and it's not just confined to women, it's confined to every other, right? So the people that are not reflected in the power structure. Um, they're walking out on the job. I mean, I think we had 15,000 Googlers just the other week walk out on the job, and we have tech that is like this close to becoming union shops. I mean, I'm a, I'm a former labor lawyer. I can see a union shop in the making. Uh, you know, and it's like, wow, we're going to be like the 1920s. Like, when Norma Ray said, down with management, screw management, we're all gonna unionize, and, and that's the environment that I'm operating in. I see that there's such a market need for what we're doing that I am personally feeling so appreciative that I have, you know, over the years kind of just stuck it out, and here I am in this like lovely situation. Uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I took the organic route, bootstrap route, just now took outside capital of three and a half million because we have, you know, as I just described, a huge market need. Um, and we're setting ourselves up for Series A uh, next quarter. Um, 
But what happens when you do it kind of like with slow cooked food, that's how I think of it, slow cooked food, it's painful, but when you make it to the point where it's really, really obvious what, you, what problem you're trying to solve and you've got a product market fit, the VCs come to you. And so, you know, I'm in a situation now where we could be really, really strategic. I mean, I have said no to top, top VCs that are behind some of the biggest technology companies in the world because at this point, I mean, it's got to be a woman VC. Sorry. It's, it's got to be a VC who understands what we're trying to do and has the reputation and the, and the contacts and the, and the know-how. To, to get us there. So that's Untrained Story. So with that, I'll open it up. Come on, Brenda, you got a question. <laughs> what about, how do you compare M-Train to the uh, HR department inside the company? Like, what, what is the you know, difference there? What do you provide? What do they provide? How does that work? Great question. What's your name? Jordan. Jordan. Because okay, so Jordan asked, how would I compare M-Train service to the internal HR department? Um, so, great question. We have 875 enterprise clients throughout the world. We sell to HR department so we have to walk a fine dance so that they see we're not out to oust them um, and, and I think that this is authentic we are there to amplify and extend their efforts because what happens and I, I've been as a lawyer you basically sell to HR right as an employment lawyer so I've been selling to HR for a long time and the HR, even the HRVP, even the CHRO, they have such little power that they're looking for this neutral third party. So we're basically creating a platform, just you know, a technology platform, just like you know any of these internet platforms that are organizing all this information. So we're creating a platform that's giving them analytics. We're actually going to be filing for a patent because we've got machine learning and predictive analytics. We're going to be able to see when a company is going to get sued for harassment based on people's questions and movements on the platform, right? And so to be able to give that kind of business intelligence to the HR team so they can turn around to the C-suite and say, I'm not joking. We really need to do an audit. We really, like, I met with the chief compliance officer of Google not too long ago. His name's Andy. I'm like, Andy, we can actually tell you, like, before you've got 15,000 people walking out, we can tell you that women want to kill you. <laughs> I mean, like, really. I mean, like, they were, like, clueless. And, and that type of business intelligence is invaluable. So we partner with HR. I think it, it's still a little tricky because some HR departments, the, the natural inclination is, is top down, close the ranks, circle the wagons. And we have just chosen as a team plenty of business. Those are not our those are not our clients. 
Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the technical platform and how you went from uh, basically your expertise as a lawyer and HR and how you built a tech company? Great question. Um, how many here are non-technical founders? So that's a huge challenge. I'll, I'll just put it out there. Um, I, I ultimately got lucky um, just because I, I kind of lasted so long. If I had to redo this, I mean, so let me just tell you my journey first and then maybe kind of best practices on what you can do to streamline that process. So for me, um, you know, I, I could have had a really successful business had I not, had I just focused and not tried to be so ambitious. But I was always ambitious, so I always had this big vision, but I didn't have the capital or the talent to actually make it happen. And so I ended up spending kind of market rate on talent that, though nice and well-intentioned, lacked experience and skill set. And it really wasn't until um, it was 2017, I mean really it was just, just, just last year, where I cold called the chief product officer of LinkedIn and I said, can I take you to coffee? I took him to coffee. I took him to a second coffee. I took him to a third coffee. And, and, and I pitched him. I go, here's my vision. And I had already turned down an offer from lynda.com before they got acquired. So, I mean, I had, I had a fleshed out vision. Some people in the space kind of knew me, but it was more like, oh, there's that Janine person. And she's got some interesting ideas, but nothing really comes up. <laughs> um, and, and finally, I think this guy, this, this guy kind of took, pity on me. He's like, you know what? I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Robert, who's the chief um, learning technology guy for LinkedIn. And, and that's how it happened. And, and Robert's now our chief product officer. And then recruited him. Um, and, and that's kind of a funny story because he consulted with us for about a couple months. Uh, and then, um, so, you know, freelancer. And then I remember having a phone call with him. He's a San Francisco guy. And I could tell I was going to get the breakup. And I'm like, the business breakup is no different than the personal breakup. Like, you can, you can, you can sense, you can smell. And, and I'm like, oh, he's, he's going to break up with me. Oh, no, no, no. I go, Robert, dude, this is a friggin' layup. I have taken this ball all the way down the court. I passed it, it's in the air, just slam dunk the ball, all right? And, and, I, and that's what I said, literally, like that. And he's like, uh, uh, okay, what, what? <laughs> and, and kind of roll them back in. Um, and, and luckily, you know, I, I painted a vision that initially was basically an easy financial decision for him. Over time, he embraced the vision, and he is now, if anything, a bigger evangelist than I am in, in kind of the, the vision. But it's all about the network, because then he just brought in his whole engineering team. So our whole product and engineering team are down in San Francisco. Um, of all your challenges in the, in the as a tech start, obviously there are many. What would you say is your biggest challenge? Has it been your biggest challenge, and how have you overcome it? <laughs> so I, you know, it's it's a it's a it's between capital and talent. 
And it's hard because they're like flip sides of the coin, right? Without the capital, you can't get the talent. But without the talent, you can't get the capital. Um, you know, I, I would say, and this kind of piggybacks into Laura's question and what I would do differently. So, and I think it, it ties into your question. I, I think the number one thing you can do, especially as a non-technical founder, is you need to just wait and find that awesome talent, that, you know, that technical kind of partner who understands the vision um, and build from there, really. And even if you have to bootstrap for a while, just build it from there, but you need to have, because we had, I feel like it was M-Train when I was just kind of going in the desert, <laughs> like circling, you know, building out solutions that were not, not you know, the best caliber, and it's just, it's, it's just difficult. So I, I think the first thing is, is finding the talent. Um, so I really appreciate your story. One of the reasons I came was because I saw that you bootstrapped yourself and like before you went into like VC mode. And I'm kind of at that point where I'm like, I could look for you know um, an angel fund and all that. I've kind of like, taken out debt. And I'm kind of interested, like, how was that journey for you in terms of like finding you know funding? How did you decide to bootstrap versus like go for an angel investor versus Series A versus like trying to kind of just kind of nail down and, and get that product. What was that journey like for you? And how did you, what were like some of the, the pivot points where you decided I'm just gonna kind of bootstrap myself first and then kind of see where to, where to go from there? So the question for those of you who didn't hear was how was the journey um, in terms of bootstrapping versus going for angel funding? And um, I think I tried looking for funding initially, um, but you know it, it was difficult for me. I mean, I'm coming from a lawyer background, like it's just so like not normal. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it, you know, I met with you know not not much success. I mean, not even. Interesting conversations. Um, the closest I got was I, I did meet somebody at Excel who then connected me with Lynda.com, and they wanted to acquire us, but that wasn't being true to my vision. Um, so at, at a certain point, I just said, "Forget it. I'll just kind of hunker down and build it." And actually, it was the VP of Corp Dev at Lynda.com who said to me, because I, I basically tried to sell them on this product idea. Um, like, hey, you should buy M-Train because this is this amazing product idea that could be really cool. And, you know, it, it didn't fit what they needed, right? And so it just didn't work. And then six months later, I had coffee with the head of Corp Dev for, for that organization. And she was really cool. And she's like, your product idea was awesome. Like, we were all intrigued, but you have to build it. Like, you, you know, if you have that, you clearly have, have it really, like, clear in your brain, you got to go build it. Like, you can't just sketch it out and then sell that to a company. It doesn't work that way. Can I ask, like, uh, and following up on that, when they said you've got to, like, build it, so from that moment, how did you get to your product? Give a little insight about that, those steps. 
yeah, so I, I started off with somebody that I met. So I, I was a San Francisco person that moved up to SAC when I got married. So I actually started the business, you know, when I was down in San Francisco, and I had somebody um, on the tech side in San Francisco, but he was self-taught, and he was, he's still with us today, I mean, we call him a co-founder, but, um, you know, in all candor, he, he, he never had the right experience or skill set to really kind of take it where it needed to go, but, you know, on, on the surface, like at first blush, we're an e-learning company, right, and we're... We're, we're much more than that, and, and we'll be morphing into a, a platform company that'll be very obvious, but for years now, we've been like a, you know, what I'd call a traditional e-learning company, and you need some kind of a learning system to launch and track and report on e-learning, right? So, um, I had always had software developers building that um, without the experience, like without the caliber of like understanding the vision, you know, it was less than ideal and I would be kind of sketching out what I wanted to see in a product. But, you know, I, I look back what we did, you know, even a few years ago versus what we started doing in 2017 with a really, I mean, our team comes from Adobe, from LinkedIn. Um, you know, just it's just it's just experience. It's just you know, it's not that they're any any smarter. It's just that they've been around the block. I mean, there's just there's no substitute for experience, and so it just everything becomes easier. It's like you know, I paint the vision, <laughs> like here's what I'm thinking, and then the chief product officer is like, okay, and then the head of product management says, all right, and the VP of engineer is like, okay, and then like come back to me, I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's beautiful, <laughs> or you know, let's change this up a little change you know it's a very collaborative process but again looping back to what I said earlier it's all about the team it is all about the team and in fact so if I mean if I could say one thing in earnest I mean it's all in earnest but one thing more than anything else the person who has the idea who has the vision what I learned just recently which I, I wish I had learned years ago was without actually having a team like you know five six seven people it's like you're, you're just you're just chasing at windmills and it's painful I mean really I mean I did it did it for a long time and, you know I eked out in existence but it, it's painful Sure, thanks. Um, so I kind of have this interesting observation where the VCs kind of expect more and more, like we want to see more users, want to see more engagement. Um, at the same time, it's like, well, if I have users, I don't need money, right? Um, so do you value kind of the VC money that you are hiring more of the scalability of your company or kind of more towards the growth and the kind of product expansion? Like kind of what what type of VC do you say that again? I'm not quite sure. I got all that. So would you rather have money back to help you grow the company as a scale of more users? Uh-huh. Or have money now actually fill out the product? Yeah, Okay, so the question is, outside capital to scale and grow, or outside capital to build the product? And I can tell you, you're always gonna get a better result, better valuation, if you wait and take that outside capital after you figure it out the recipe. 
and you just scale it. So for example, I had a couple, two, three meetings with um, VCs at the beginning of this year, and we, you know, we had not yet kind of transformed ourselves, right? So we were kind of tracking and, and looking like a more traditional e-learning company, which is, you know, frankly not very interesting for, for the VCs that we were talking to that want to see something like really disruptive. And it, it was just a misfire, right? Because for them, it's like, all right, well, so your idea is really interesting, but when I look at the business, it looks something like something very different than what you're describing, which was true. And from their perspective, I'm untested. I'm not a Stanford MBA. I'm not in that ecosystem. It's a big risk, and I get it for them. And they're like, okay, you know, maybe we would, you know, invest some money, but at pretty discounted valuations because it's a big risk. As opposed to, uh, and this one fellow was nice enough to, to say, because he was a friend of our friend, he's like, Janine, you know, I'm sorry, if I were you, <laughs> again, just build it out. Just build it out, de-riskify it for us. And then it's gonna be a total connection. It'll be a total win-win. Because then you, you've kind of you know, shown them the vision. They could see that it, it's working, even if it's just kind of a, a beta. Um, and, and then they can do their financial modeling from there. So uh, you bootstrap, meaning you self-funded through, I assume, your, your own money and revenue. And it sounds like you had kind of a version one of the product that generated some revenue, and then as you got more revenue, you built in more functionality, is that correct? So, have you even taken angel or VC money yet? Just zero. Well, that, we took debt, debt capital. Debt. So we took debt. We took our first tranche of debt capital last summer, uh, July 2017, to enable us to bring on a chief product officer. And then we're just taking on a second tranche now of debt capital uh, to allow us to make some uh, other team investments that you know we couldn't organically fund. Um, I mean, every, everything we make is just going into the product. So I meet a lot of early stage startup founders who haven't even built their MVP yet. And they all think that they need funding to build the product. And you're an example of someone who didn't do it that way. Uh, Skyslope, another supplemental company, is an example of a company that didn't do it that way. Do you have any advice? them on how you make that successful? How can you actually build something if you don't have any investment? I mean, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, how much have you prepared, how much are you willing to risk? I mean, I I am comfortable with a level of risk that freaks out my, my family and my friends. <laughs> and, and I luckily, you know, I sleep really well at night. I, mean, I just, you know, I don't think about it. Um, so, I mean, it really, it depends. I mean, everyone is wired differently. And, um, you know, uh, so... I, I'm just comfortable with the level of risk, and I, I've also, and again, this is also smart. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've kind of pursued delayed gratification 
to a really unhealthy measure. <laughs> like, let's just say my, my, I've got two boys. I don't think that either one of them will be entrepreneurs. Because <laughs> they're like, wow, really? <laughs> you know, but it's, it's just the way I've chosen to you know, pursue this, where everything I make goes back into the company and um, you know, I'm not even taking any chips off the table. And so I mean, I, it depends on what type of business you're doing. But for what we are doing, um, all of our costs are labor costs. So you know, with that, without huge upfront investment, which obviously some businesses require, but you know, soft, that's the beauty of software. We're a software as a service business. I mean, it's it, it's it's really not that much upfront investment of capital it's just it's sweat equity so if you're willing to like go without money for a while you can do it and I mean for me also and this is also different for other people but I, I was such a novice I mean I was I look back and I, I, I really I cringe on how how naive I was how ignorant I was um, and and I say that because had I not bootstrapped, there's no way I would have I would be here today. Like if I had done it the more kind of buttoned up way where you take outside capital and, and you do everything beautifully, well you kind of have, you know, one shot, maybe two shots to make that happen. And if you're not super experienced, if you haven't done it before, you know, you're gonna be floundering a little bit. And there's no room for floundering when you've when you've got other people's money in your business. Uh, yeah, yeah. What is your long-term vision for M-Train and what's your exit strategy? Uh, so long-term vision for M-Train, um, you know, it, it's, I was just talking to another labor lawyer this morning, um, you know, and, and she and I were both chatting. It, it's, it's, you know, I, I think that M-Train can be a social platform. So think about it. Other than your romantic life, what what's more on your mind than like stuff that happens at work? Like I look at the questions that we we answer, and we are like a dear Abby for work. And, and and yet, not only are we a dear Abby, but like, and for us it's so simple. It's it's just giving them the words to use to get them the results they need. You know, we ghostwrite a lot of emails for our users to send to their managers to get certain results. Um, so when I think about how important these issues are for people, I think this, this is a social platform that should be global, that should have hundreds of millions of users on it. When you say social, social interact? I mean social in that it's both an enterprise platform, but it's also a social platform because by January, February, this will be a, 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 a premium. So anyone can go onto our platform, ask experts a question, just like Quora. Um, but you can you can take a little mini lesson. You can share a lesson. If you got a question about bias, pay, you know, wage and hour, you know, any any of the issues that affect you in your workplace, you can talk to professors, government regulators, lawyers, HR people. You don't have to talk to your own HR people, and you can get their advice. And that's a big platform play.
So we're, we're, we're private now. I mean, at some point, I'm gonna have to figure out my own exit strategy, and I'm 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 right now thinking about methods or, or ways that I can take my own chips off the table. There's a few of us that have been doing this probably way longer than is healthy, <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking of ways that I can exit without having the company exit. You can exit your Without having the company exit. Oh. But you can do it with percentage of the company as part of your exit plan. At this, I mean, when I finally exit, I don't think I'll care. You'll be okay. Because, it, you know, if I was just doing this for the money, I, I would have exited a long time ago. So at this point, this is like my, this is my contribution to my, my career, basically. Like, okay, I was a, a labor lawyer giving everyone access to, to legal information to, to fend for themselves and help guide their way through the workplace, and that, that's it. You said the time before that we're going to use it, which is a premium model. Can you talk a little bit about like the different, like how did you decide to price it? How did you, you know, did you go through different kind of price models and those calls, or did you like know that you were going to be kind of, I don't even know how your price right now, but did you, what was your kind of iterations, and have you now in January to a premium model? How did you arrive at that so the question is, how did I arrive at the decision of a freemium model? Um, and so, for there's a there's a traditional compliance e-learning business, which is not very interesting. I mean, it is what it is. That's like anyone who's been in big corporate America gets a link, and you just kind of it's like PowerPoint on the web. So there's there's kind of settled pricing for that, and we're reflecting that. And moving forward, as we start to give analytics um, and other more kind of intelligent solutions to, to companies, we'll, we'll probably price that as like an add-on. Um, and the freemium just made sense because this is a public play. A, when I say public, I mean it's just it's a it's a it's a B to C play. It's a B to C to B play. Basically. Is it more to kind of just getting traction users? It's getting it's getting users. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so this so the question is, you know, what what advice would I give my my former self when I was first starting out? I, I would say reach out earlier than I did for um, help. I mean, I think it's so. I, uh, I'll speak for myself, but I, I would think that this applies to a lot of us in this room. It's so easy to get in the trenches and be bogged down with the, the right now, the stuff that needs to be done right now. Um, and and that's, a, that's a challenge because to really accelerate, you kind of need to force yourself to get out of the trenches um, and see the bigger picture. And it really wasn't until I started doing that, I started driving down to San Francisco. My whole professional network was frankly down there, not up here. And I started leveraging that more. And once I'm leveraging that, being in SAC was totally fine. It's not a big deal. Um, but it, it was kind of very intentionally identifying who could be helpful, reaching out to that person, even if it was cold. And what I've seen um, 
so far is uh, certainly not always because people are super busy. Um, but everyone who's done this journey, we know how rough it is, and 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 I think people want to help. So. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you're looking for a female VC. Is that what you said? Yeah. And I, I was just wondering what your, um, you can kind of shed a little more light on that. Why is that um, So it's important for a couple of reasons. So, um, and certainly not, this is not true across the board because our chief product officer is, you know, obviously he's male, um, and he totally got it. Um, but as I'm talking to VCs, the women VCs versus the male VCs, you know, the women aren't on the outs, the men are not. And so the women kind of get it like that, like, oh yeah, it's, it sucks to be in a room where you're the only gal. Um, and so I have to do a whole lot less explaining of the product vision to a woman. Um, so there's that. Then also, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at this nice place where both with M-Train and then, you know, who I choose to partner with and do business with, you know, it's not about the money anymore. It's about, okay, what, what kind of impact do I want to have? Um, and, you know, in their own niche, you know, the women VCs are as, as undercapitalized, under-resourced, you know, as women founders. I mean, they're looking for the, the next great deal, right? So why not pay it back that way? Um, with the, you know, obviously the minimum requirements of that person needs to be in a uh, you know, a group and a, a firm where they've done this before and they've got portfolio companies that they can point to like, yeah, I have a lot to offer. So. <laughs> I met you at another event a few months ago, last year sometime. You had mentioned that you have an opportunity to move your business and your family to San Francisco, mm -hmm. but you chose to stay in Sacramento. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you chose Sacramento over the Bay Area? Yeah, so, um, so the question was, you know, this was. Oh, it was 2016, I think it was, when we, my family and I were contemplating moving to the Bay Area because, you know, there's such a rich ecosystem down there, and for what we're doing, it, it, business-wise, it, it actually made more sense. Um, but my husband and I and, and my, my boys were like, it, it's not the lifestyle that we want. Um, and so, you know, it was really, it was a lifestyle thing. It was more like, um, it's, it's just, it's so much more pleasant being in a, a smaller community where people know each other, where it's just still, uh, you know, pr pretty personal as opposed to, it's just, I mean, I, I will always love San Francisco, but it's, it's in a, it's in a tough spot right now. And I, I certainly would not want to be bringing up kids right now in the Bay Area. And that's just my personal, my personal choice. And, you know, when I time it right, it's an hour and 15. 
Yeah, so it's doable. So uh, one of the differences I see between Sacramento, what's available in Sacramento, what's available in the Bay Area, is um, product managers and product managers who are who have worked with startups rather than product managers who've spent their career at Intel or HP. Yeah. Do you find that to be the case? I, I don't even see events here for learning product management, whereas I see them all the time offered uh, in the sort of startup system in the Bay Area. Yeah, so good question, Laura. So, um, M-Train is a two-office uh, uh, company, so we've got an office here, we've got an office in, in San Francisco. All of our product and our engineering is down in San Francisco, to your point. And, and part of, I think, the wandering in the desert year, years was trying to recruit a team from this region on the product side. And, you know, we're basically an internet company, right? So just like, you know, Instacart or Grubhub, you know, any, any, any traditional service that's that's empowered by technology like that's what we do right and there's still I think a you know a weakness here I mean there I'll turn around there's still an opportunity for growth in SAC on the product side and I think we spent a few years here trying to make available local talent work and um, I'm sure that'll be changing but but it's not changed yet. Sure some early stage startups know the difference between a product manager and class very different. Yeah right so at least for our business Chief Product Officer, uh, yeah, so you got the founder who's got the vision, right? And then that person needs to be really, really collaborative, simpatico with the Chief Product Officer who's basically, I see your vision, I'm gonna go make it happen. That person needs to be super connected to the VP of Engineering, it's like the architect and the builder. So Chief Product Officer is your architect, your, your uh, head of engineering is your builder, and then you've got the product manager who is the glue in between. And, I mean, really, your product manager is glue in between everything because the product manager is talking to the customer, talking to sales, talking to marketing, and the product manager is the refinement. It's like, okay, we started off here, but we're gonna do a change order here, we're gonna do a change order here, we're gonna refine it. And, and that has to be down like that. And it's it's a different process. I mean, we, we had somebody you know for a little bit from Intel, and and it was it, it was just a different experience. It was just you know kind of apples and oranges, and and that was a disservice to that person and disservice to to entry. Right. Jump in. We got about ten or fifteen more minutes. Who has not asked a question yet? Raise your hand. Cindy is one. Hold on. Anybody else who's not asked a question wants to? All right. So these are our next two questions. Cindy and then this gentleman. Cindy. So, um, you know, you have been training the one and there's this program. No. Uh. Uh. It's the whole. Yeah. 
with each other on how we're making sure that the foundation of our company has an ethical Oh, obviously, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the question is, how do we check each other so that the foundation of the business is an ethical business? And so, M Train, our our areas of focus are respect, bias, ethics. Um, we have we cover about you know all told about thirty topics that we believe go into a healthy workplace culture, business culture. Um, and so, for ethics, you know, it it's, it starts at the top. Um, I don't know who here happened to read the New York Times article was out, I think yesterday, about Facebook and what was happening at Facebook between Zuckerberg and, I mean, so for me, because, you know, I'm a subject matter expert in that, I was fascinated because it was, it was classic where with ethics, you know, it's teaching people, it's when you're in those horrible situations, right, where you're sweating. That that you need to slow down. You need to get somebody else in. You need to like stop. You can't be making decisions. Um, so I, I think to answer your question, you know, it's 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 weaving it into the, the fabric and the and, and, uh, of the culture, um, and it has to start at the top um, where the senior leadership is sharing with everyone because there, there's so many there's so many situations in any business that are so easy to rationalize and cut corners and so on and so forth and unless you kind of are pretty anchored like this is this is what it means to us to do this business and it's not all about making money like obviously we need to be successful so that we can grow and, and, and deliver this great service to the market and that's going to be the thing but uh, not at all costs yeah um so i think that's how we can help each other is to keep each other in check but it's not about becoming the next And I would say um, also as a community for those of us who are a little bit further along in our per personal journey, our life journey, share with others that, you know, it's just a little perspective. Like, you know, if I could talk to my younger self, it's like, you know what, you're really not going to care about that new car when you're that age. Like, really, it's, it's really not that important. And, and just, you know, I don't know how much that can be absorbed, you know, by somebody who's not in that, that perspective, but it certainly would help to have different perspectives who have just, you know, a little bit more life experience, share as a community. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about the importance of uh, first of all, thank you for your time tonight. Uh, you talked about the importance of having a great network. How have you been able to both nurture the network that you've built over the years and grow it as well? This question is how have I been able to nurture existing network and then grow, grow a network? Um, being intentional and, and and just caveat, I I frankly am not that great at that I would say I mean I feel um, for those of you who may know me and Laura I'm, I'm, I'm a chicken without my head I'm frazzled I got way too many balls in the air <laughs> 
Um, so, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to give anyone the impression that, like, oh, yeah, Janine's nurturing all of our relationships. I'm not. <laughs> but I think about it, and, and I think that um, you, you need to be intentional. So, for example, I am driving down Monday night to go have dinner with an advisor who I met at Lynda.com. He's got a patent. He he created the Adobe Creative Suite. Fritz Hoverman, awesome. He's loved him. He's flying in from Seattle to San Francisco. Do I want to be driving down to San Francisco at four in the afternoon on Monday? No. <laughs> but it's like, no, no, no. You, you got like, you just sometimes you just have to like say, I'm doing this to nurture the relationships. And I think if you do that, it, it just kind of stems from there, really. All right. Two, yeah. Let's see. Let's do one more question. Who hasn't? Who has not? I want to give every chance, Brenda. Who has not asked a question and is dying to ask a question? Anybody? And I never thought I'd say this. Usually we say let the women ask questions. I said this so quiet. So I say it needs to be a man. <laughs> yes. So, how do you see uh, the political landscape influencing startups in the next like three to five years, particularly with things like Dynamics and some of these kind of decisions? Uh, how do you see that influencing startups who maybe are bootstrapping and they they need to hire independent contractors, but now they kind of can't or shouldn't? Uh, how do you see some of those things influencing? Opportunities or startups. I mean, is it significant? Is it not? Is it reversed? I mean, what's the landscape look like? Um, so, are you specific to um, independent contractors and well, the employment law? I guess in the way the businesses hire and bring on talent, right? I mean, that's the issue. So there will always be uh, a framework for bringing on uh, contingent labor, always. You know, I think that what society and, and the legislative system is starting to be more scrut you know, scrutinizing of are typically larger organizations that are really kind of working the system. Um, and, you know, so that, that's, that's the concern. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really any any really well established organization who has figured out a way to leverage contingent labor in a way that's really not appropriate, right? So they kind of treat them uh, just like they would their their FTEs, but without any of the benefits. Um, you know, and that's been going on for 30, 40 years. I mean, it's always kind of you know. It's, it's, it's always a tension, but for a small business to, um, you know, to, to leverage freelance labor, that's, that's totally fine. I think the bigger issue, and I, I, I have been guilty of this, and I've heard through uh, conversations others kind of fall into this mistake, where they give, you know, equity to a freelancer who, you know, that's kind of a misfire, right? And I did that, right? Like, cause, you know, as you're just trying to get something off the ground, it's like, okay, I don't have much money, so I'll give that person equity, and and uh, and that's more ripe for, I think, problems in the states. I think employment law is a really serious need for startups because it's a lot of like, yeah, you know, you're a friend, let's just work together, let's just start a good stuff. So there's really no contracts in place. So really oh, gosh, yeah. so 
hopefully it works out, right? I mean, but that's kind of a best case scenario. Uh, and then there's plenty of startup settings that are too early, even if they were going to be successful. So, yeah. yeah, you can never go wrong by clearly outlining roles, responsibilities, and expectations. And you could even, I mean, it's not ideal, but even to the extent that you do it without a lawyer, um, I got to think that there's legal help available for not that much money. But, um, you know, even if that's too much, just, just outlining whatever its expectations are so that there's some record of it is always helpful. I mean, our board member, just to give you an illustration, he uh, was the CFO of a company that, that got acquired last year by VMware. And it was like, Janine, it was like 400 million change, and it almost blew up because there was an early, an early kind of interaction relationship that was not well documented. People did not understand what, you know, what was happening. And so when you hear about that, it's like, oh my goodness. So, you know, err on the side of being very clear. And you've come to one of the uh, startup founder legal education workshops. Oh, yeah. Right. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. So I'm gonna any last word, parting thought, parting word of advice as a as a final parting shot before we close your parting shot. <laughs> Don't feel the same. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think that um, what, what has been really important for me to think about, um, like, I keep on asking myself, okay, if I had to do this all over again, how, how would I do this? And I keep on coming back to spending enough time, spending enough money to get really an MVP built out so that you can take that and attract a really quality team. And to the extent that you're not able to attract a quality team, it, you need to ask yourself, I'm not, I'm not communicating well. Like there's something missing. It's on me, not on them. My early days, I'm like, what's wrong with these people? They're not understanding me. No, 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 it's on me. I'm not obviously saying it in a way that people understand. And so just keep on iterating until you've got something that is flushed out enough and you're able to articulate in a way that people connect with it and you can attract the team. Because without a team, it's, it's your no one. Yeah.